0: I don't know about you, but one of my favorite kind of genres of uh, film is the classic and overcoming an obstacle kind of film. You know, Rocky, Rocky Balboa, that kind of film. Remember Rocky? Uh, Rocky is uh, by day, he uh, uh, collects uh, money for a loan shark. And then at night he uh, fights in these sleazy clubs as a boxer, and he just gets these low pay rewards. In some ways, he's mocked. He's told that he's nothing but a bum. Yes, someone knows he's nothing but a bum. But he overcomes this obstacle. He, he has overwhelming eyes against him, and he becomes the heavyweight champion of the world. There's Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith, and Will Smith plays a character named Chris Gardner. Uh, Chris Gardner has a young son and the two of them struggle through homelessness for uh, over a year and he ends up founding his own multi-million dollar brokerage firm. Enormous obstacles. Then there's a, a, a movie called Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures is about a, a group of African-American women who work for NASA and they are faced with unjust sexism and racism and Somehow they, they uncover some mathematical mistakes during the flight of Friendship Seven that's captained by John Glenn. And these mistakes meant that the astronauts, they were in grave danger as they were making their uh, hope for seven orbits. And they can't make those seven orbits. They land after the third because of these mistakes. If these mistakes weren't found, those astronauts would have died, all because of these this group of African-American women. In each of these movies, it's it's heartwarming. They're they're worth watching, but the obstacles that exist there, they're not erected by the people who overcame them. You you know, it's not Rocky's fault that he's this lowly blue-collar fighter. It's not Chris Gardner's fault that he's homeless. It's not the fault of those African-American women that they're sidelined by NASA due to their gender and race. So you have each one of these films. They highlight patience and endurance and determination of the main characters, and that's what helps them overcome hardship. And I would argue that it takes all of these characteristics, patience and endurance and determination, to overcome the following kind of obstacle, and that's the kind of obstacle that you cost. I heard a story about a reporter. Her name's Dana Knowles. Uh, She uh, overcame an addiction. She had an addiction to opiates and alcohol, and she tells her story. And as she tells her story, she was talking about how she uh, fought eating disorders in her 20s and 30s. And she combined that with overexercising, and it leads to an injury where she's prescribed opiates to deal with the pain. She gets hooked on these opiates, and she needs them so bad, she starts visiting friends' houses and going through their cabinets stealing them. It got so bad that her husband confronted her and he said, you you need to get clean. You got to go to a treatment center for 90 days and if you don't get clean you're not going to see me or your three kids ever again. This really woke her up and she gets clean and she talks about the moment as she's telling her story that it wasn't when her husband confronted her that was her low point. The low point happened when she got a letter when she was in treatment. She a letter from her eight-year-old daughter. An eight-year-old daughter writes very few words but draws a picture. And the picture she drew was her mother is laying on the couch asleep. And then there's her, the eight-year-old, taking care of her two toddler twin siblings. And what the the picture was communicating is that because of her addiction, she was unable to mother her children. And she talks about the shame that washed over her. She looked at this picture and she realized at that moment that shame was always her trigger. She realized that the cycle went, feel shame, take drugs. Feel shame, more shame, take more drugs. And she said that at least for her, that her addiction was all about dealing with shame. It was all about using a substance. It was all about using an activity to silence the voice of shame. And the moment that she sees this drawing, the moment she felt that shame, she started to deal with with it and that's the moment she started getting sober now I know you might not deal with your shame with substances but the truth is none of us deal with shame in a healthy way we all build barriers in our relationship with God and other people when we deal with shame in unhealthy ways because we're not openly dealing with God and other people when we do such and maybe the barrier you build when you feel shame isn't with substances. Maybe it's you get real busy. Maybe you start overworking. Maybe you start compulsively cleaning. Maybe you numb out with TV. Maybe you just put in the air and keep listening to podcasts. Maybe you get around other people. All as a way to guard against those fiery arrows of shame. Who knows, but we, 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 I don't know how, what it means for you, but we've got to deal with that. We have to know, what do we do with our lives when we're the one who messed it up? When well, there's no one to blame but ourselves. And I think our text does that today. See, last week, if you were here, you know we looked at Abraham. Abraham was in Egypt, not in Canaan, and he had gone to Egypt because they had food there. There was a famine in Canaan. It's not a bad move for them to go to Egypt, but what was his bad move is that he lied about his relationship that he had with his wife, Sarah. He didn't call Sarah his wife. He called her his sister. And he did that because he was afraid that if they knew that she was his wife, that they would kill him in order to take her. But they end up taking Sarah because they think that she's just his sister and Pharaoh takes Sarah into his household and as she's getting acclimated, the whole household, Pharaoh's household, comes down with the plague. And somehow Pharaoh connects the plague with a lie from Abraham about Sarah and their relationship. So he orders Sarah and Abraham to flee from Egypt. Now, if you're Abraham in this moment, how are you doing right here? I mean, here's the guy who received all these promises from God at the beginning of chapter 12. He, God tells him, I'm going to make your name great. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make you a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And then on the heels of hearing those great promises, he jeopardizes all this blessing by giving his wife away to the most powerful person in the world. He puts his wife in danger, he demonstrates his unbelief in God. He's overly afraid of Pharaoh. Unfortunately for Abraham and Sarah, God rescues them. But Abraham has a choice. How is he going to respond to God and Sarah? Is he going to deny or defend his actions? Is he going to quit this whole journey of faith? Is he going to stand in quicksand, the quicksand of shame, and hang his head and believe that he's unworthy and unfit and unsuitable to be the bearer of God's promises? Well, let's find out in chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 1 starts. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and a lot with him. Into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and I, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the Jordan Valley, that it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram Settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. The word of the Lord. Do you see the first thing Abraham did once he leaves Egypt? He goes to the place that he last worshipped. I mean, remember two weeks ago we talked about Abraham after he had received those blessings and he left the land of his forefathers. He goes to Canaan and he goes to Canaan and he starts celebrating the goodness of God. He starts first at Shechem. And at Shechem in 12 verse 6 he builds an altar. Then he goes a little further south to Bethel and he builds an altar there. And then the text ends at the, in verse 9 of chapter 12 that now... Abraham is at Negev. And then you look at 13.1, what I just read, and you see that once he flees Egypt, where does he go first? He goes to Negev. That's the last place he was before he went to Egypt. And do you see where he went right after he went to the Negev in in chapter 13? You see it in verse 3. He went to Bethel. Well, that was the place he was before he was at Negev. And you see what he does there at Bethel. He does what you're supposed to do at altars. You call upon the name of the Lord. So do you see what Abraham did? As soon as he gets kicked out of Egypt, he repents. You don't see it in his words. You see it in his actions. He retraces his steps back to the Negev, then to Bethel. He's starting over. He wants to recover his experience with God, the one that he had lost when he had gone to Egypt. And that might be what you need to do today. What you need to do is that you need to retrace your steps and you need to repent. Maybe it means you go back physically to the place where your relationship with God all started. Maybe it means you go back to a building on campus. Maybe it means you go back to to, to the place, a a ratty hotel room on a beach after a bender on spring break where you found God. Maybe you go back to the church of your childhood. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that you face your shame head on. That's what Abraham had to do. You've got to feel it. You've got to take it to the Lord. You've got to confess your sins. You can't go to some substance. You can't go to some distracting habit. You've got to let the shame come, and you've got to wait for Jesus to say words like he did to Abraham. You need to hear Jesus say words like, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, I think what happened when Abraham got back to Bethel, here's what happened. He gets back to Bethel, And he hears the promises again. He hears, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I will make you a blessing and I'll make your name great. All of these things come flooding back to Abraham. So will you go back to your Bethel? Will you go back to your Bethel for a reset? Will you go back to your Bethel for a do-over? See, Abraham did this and that's where he got reoriented. He got reoriented to God's grace. And that's what allows him to pass the second test. He fails the first one. You know, the famine came and he acted in unbelief. Well, this time the test is quite the opposite of a famine. His test now is one of prosperity. Abraham's now a wealthy man. Remember when he was in Egypt, because he had lied about his relationship with Sarah, The Pharaoh, the richest man in the world, essentially gives a dowry to Abraham. And now Abraham has material possessions. And once he flees from Egypt, those material possessions had increased to the extent that he's given Lot some stewardship over some of them. And Lot is his kind of adopted son. It was his nephew, Abraham's brother Haran. Lot's dad had died and Now Lot has been Abraham's sidekick ever since. And you couldn't measure their wealth in their bank account. It was in livestock. And so that meant that they needed land for the animals to graze upon. And you see that they don't have land. They just have livestock in verse 7. In verse 7, it says that they live in the land of the Canaanites and of the Perizzites. So with their livestock, they've got to eke out their life on the edges and these edges, they didn't produce enough food for both of them to stay together, and that's resulted in a conflict. So now the conflicts arisen. Abraham's got three choices. His first choice is that he could have left Canaan. He could find a place that supports both him and Lot. If he does this, it preserves his relationship with Lot and preserves all his wealth. But it jeopardizes his faith because the land that God had given him is here in Canaan. It's his first option, to leave. His second is that he could have taken all that land for himself. If he does, that preserves his faith. I mean, if he stays where he's at, I mean, that's where God wants him to be. So it preserves his faith. It also secures his assets. They're not at risk. But what is at risk would be His relationship with Lot, his nephew, would have been severed. He wouldn't have resolved any kind of conflict. So that's the second one. He could have taken the land for himself. The third one is he could have done what we just read. (laughs) What he does here is that he lets Lot choose the better section of the Canaanite land for himself. And Lot, of course, takes the more desirable piece. And by doing so, Abraham maintains his faith because he gets to stay in Canaan. And he maintains his relationship with Lot, the nephew with whom he's in conflict with. But do you see what he risks? He risks his assets. So we see how Abraham's changed here, don't we? I mean, he's worshipped back there in verses 3 and 4. He's repented back there in verses 1 to 5. And now he's at Bethel. And we see how he, his view has changed of his material wealth. He sees that in God, he has this abundance of resources. He knew that all that he had had nothing to do with him, that he was given it all. He knows God's given him everything. He's got the freedom to be generous with his possessions. He's got the freedom to be merciful to Lot. He's not bound by selfishness or greed or anxiety. He knew that God meant what he said, so it mattered very little to Abraham which piece of land he would end up getting. You he see, he's changed. You he see, he's changed in how he views his money. You he see, he's changed how he views Lot. I mean, Abraham didn't want to wait for the conflict to escalate. Instead, he nips it in the bud. He takes the initiative. He proposes a resolution. And it's remarkable because Abraham's the one who's the older of the two. He's the one to whom all the promises were made. He's the one who could have appealed to his own position, but he doesn't. Instead, he treats his, lot, his nephew Lot like an equal. Unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, Abraham takes this risk. He prioritizes generosity. He prioritizes peacemaking. But you see what Lot's all about. He's driven by his senses. See it in verse 10. Verse 10 says, Lot lifted up his eyes. And when he does, he sees something he wants. He sees a a land budding with potential. It it looks like, it says, the garden of the Lord. It's It's an allusion to the garden of Eden. He sees the Valley of the Jordan. It looks like the Garden of Eden. It looks like Egypt. And he knows what Egypt looked like. He just came from there with his uncle Abraham. But he ignores something. He ignores the people. In verse 13, they're called the wicked great sinners of Sodom. So you see lost priorities. He values his material possessions more than he does his personal holiness. He doesn't consider the danger that comes with being in close proximity to evil people. He doesn't properly weigh the negative impact that they can have on his life. Why? Why does he ignore them? It's because his stuff has become too important to him. He's been deceived by his money. So there's a lesson here for us. Our eyes are not to be trusted. And nothing deceives like material prosperity. See, the image the Scriptures regularly use to talk about the effect of money on the human heart is the word snare. Deuteronomy 7.25 says, You shall not covet the silver or gold lest you be ensnared by it. 1 Timothy 6.9 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. You know what a snare is. A, a snare is something by which you can be entangled by. It's something that's designed to deceive you by being attractive in and of itself. Uh, last week, I was at Lighthouse. Many of you have served at Lighthouse. They serve uh, lunch and dinner every day uh, for the underprivileged in and around downtown. And uh, I was there. But when I go, I preach at lunch once a month. And I usually go and visit their executive director. Her name's Tay Henderson. She's the best, she's a hero of mine. And uh, I go back there. I'm just visiting with her. I just say, hey, tell me about what's been going on around here. And she said something incredible. She tells me the story. And I knew that for a while she's been wanting to uh, finish out the second floor of the building. If you've been in the building, the first floor uh, is, is, is a huge dining room that feeds folks. It's got a kitchen, a couple offices. But above that, there's a second floor. And she's had these dreams of uh, wanting to, to, to finish it out, to provide some showers and some offices, a, a place to, uh, to, to deliver more services to the underprivileged than just food. And she's had, she told, and I knew she was having a hard time raising money for it, and she said that now all our money's raised." I said, "Well, t- get, tell me how did it happen?" And she said, "Well, some, I was praying about it, and somebody called me and uh, said Hey, is there any special project going on at the lighthouse? We've come into a moderate sum of money that we'd like uh, to give away. So Tay meets with them and tells them all about her plans for the second floor. And uh, the people, the the couple asked, they say, well, um, how much is that going to cost? She said, well, it costs $200,000. So they go home and they tell Tay, we'll we'll give you a call back in the next few days. They call back in the next few days and they say, we want to give you $200,000 to cover the whole thing. And Tay couldn't believe it. <laughs> she said that they uh, recently had inherited all that money, the $200,000. They had a relative who died and left it with them. And their original intent was just to tie it. They're just going to give $20,000 away. But they realized that they were given the money and that there was a real need, so they took it as God wanting them to give it all away. Now, I'm sure if this couple would have met with some financial advisors and said, how do you think I should... Uh, use this money they would have said you know what you need to set up a Roth IRA you need to max contribute for both of you and you'll be able to do that for about the next 15 years and then you can maximize your future returns As you a know financial advisor they might say you know what you can sack all that away and you can make sure your kids are free from student debt and maybe maybe those are wise financial decisions but they might be a snare So the next time you're offered a raise, the next time you come into some money, don't trust your eyes. Realize that that extra money, it comes with extra responsibility that you might not need. It might come with extra travel that could be dangerous for you. It might come with extra time commitments for you. And they all could be at odds with the priorities of the kingdom. So what happens to Abraham? Abraham gets this Really bad piece of land. Lockets gets this good piece of land. They stay in relationship. We haven't considered Abraham's relationship with God, have we? Well, look at verses 14 to 18. In verses 14 to 18, God comes to Abraham and he reassures him of all the promises from chapter 12. In fact, verses 14 to 18 of chapter 13 look a lot like verses 1 to 3 of chapter 12. God essentially comes to Abraham and, and gives him reassurance. And Abraham hears the promises. He heard them loud and clear back in chapter 12, but I think God came because Abraham needed to hear it again. Abraham had just taken this huge risk and given Lot the better piece of land. Abraham could be sitting there with possible doubt like, is this all going to really work out? So God comes and reassures him and overwhelms him with his presence you see what Abraham does in verse 18. He does the same thing he did back there in verse 4. He worships. I think Abraham's thinking, who am I that God shows me kindness? I just blew it back there in Egypt. God didn't have to come and give me reassurance. I heard him the first time. But he came to me. He stooped down to my level. There's nothing that's left for me here than to worship. So doesn't this show us the actual pattern of faith? Abraham starts out strong in chapter 12. He falls hard in the second half of chapter 12. And now he's back on the rise in verse 13. I don't know what you think your is going to be like, but I can assure you something. It's not up and to the right. It's not clean and predictable. There's ups, there's downs, there's downs, there's ups. There are some unpredictable things in this life, but there is a pattern That happens to us. And you see it here. It's not up and to the right. It's more of a cycle. You start out strong. You exercise faith. You obey. Then you fail. Then you repent. Then you experience God's forgiveness. And then you're propelled out into a new round of obedience. And then you're given reassurance. And then you start all over again. (laughs) It is a cycle that God leads you again over and over and over. And when you realize that, you will realize that there's many versions of you. I mean, look at Abraham here. He seems like he's schizophrenic, doesn't he? I mean, I don't mean that in the clinical sense. I just mean that in the sense of how many different kinds of person we find here. I mean, he leaves all and obeys God's call. He fears Pharaoh more than God. He betrays his wife. He repents. Then he's generous with Lot. And then he worships. Does that sound like you? It sounds a lot like me. And that means you've got to embrace failure as a continuing part of the Christian life. Not just pain, but failure. See, I'll give you a little sneak preview here. Abraham doesn't blow it just once. (laughs) He blows it a bunch more times. And if Abraham, arguably one of the three most prominent figures of the Old Testament, is repeated failure, then we are too. Expect it. It's coming. But cheer up, friends. Jesus is quite accomplished at dealing with failures. He will find you in your Egypt. He will bring you to repentance. He will enable your obedience. And when you obey, you won't be able to believe that you pulled that off, and then he's going to come real close, and he's going to assure you, reassure you of his love for you. He's going to come, and he's going to say, nothing can separate you From my love, not death, not life, not angels, not rulers, not things present, not things that come, not powers, not height or depth, nothing in all creation. He'll do that with you. He'll come real close to you and he'll give you another promise. He's going to tell you that he loved you so much that he sacrificed his own son for you. He's going to come real close and he's going to invite you to give him all of your burdens because he is gentle and lowly. He's going to come to you and say, I can carry your cares because I care for you. So friends, may you hear these words this morning. Let's pray.